This evening our subject is the hero mythology of the Nordic people and the Germanic peoples. And this is really a very large subject because it divides into a broad group of legendary and lore, almost any part of which could constitute a complete discussion. We will try, however, to establish certain broad patterns, and each individual will be the better if he fills in some of the material himself. There is no group of symbols that so quickly suggest interpretation or are more stimulating to the imagination and ingenuity of the thoughtful person. The Nordic mythology probably originated in Asia and was brought to the Scandinavian area by a Scythian prince uh, called Sigi. Uh, this migration, which uh, included a long trek across most of Europe, was accomplished sometime probably from one to five centuries before the beginning of the Christian era. Some places a little later. The dates are unobtainable. After he had established himself at Uppsala, this Prince Sigi formed a sacred college or school and gradually was transformed by lore and legendary into the deity Odin. This, however, while it answers some questions, creates more than it answers. For we know that at a comparatively early date, possibly as the development of the ritualism of a religious system required, the story of Odin took upon itself cosmological and universal implications. And whatever roots or foundations may have been historical were soon lost or totally obscured. The Nordic rites and mysteries and legends are contained in these great poetic works which we call the sagas and the Edas. They are magnificent examples of literary achievement. Rich in wonderful metered verse, deep, wise, but in their present forms not especially ancient. The compilation of these works from oral tradition was comparatively late in terms of historical antiquity. We know, however, that the content was a very much older inception. And then gradually this lore and legendary migrated into the Teutonic states and established itself firmly along the course of the River Rhine. This transplantation of ideas naturally had psychological overtones. The Teutons had a somewhat different personal and national entity than the Nordics of the Scandinavian area. And so we find the legends and stories taking on new coloring, local atmosphere, and mingling with the hero tales already present in the Germanic folklore. The third great step in the development of our story occurs in the 19th century with the rise of the Wagnerian music drama. 
Richard Wagner built his great cycle of the ring of the Nibelung upon the Sigurd saga, the Nordic work relating to the hero of the tribe of the Valsungs, the hero of the world. Yet Wagner was by nature not one inclined merely to perpetuate an ancient law. <coughs> he was a man of very involved mental and emotional structure, and he was also deeply concerned over the production of great music ritual. To achieve these ends, he took the Sigurd saga and other related material and created what might almost be termed a Wagnerian mythology. The elements are derived from ancient sources, but the arrangements have been changed. The patterns have been readapted, and a broad and scattered group of legends have been tied into one consistent story. Yet when the work was finished, we have perhaps in the Nibelungen cycle one of the most powerful mythological developments in the entire history of man. Wagner gave us a new mythology. Deeply involved in his own convictions, but with some evidence within him that it is far more than merely the ingenuity of a great artist. Wagner in some way captured a spirit, perhaps more effectively than the old bards, and he brought it together in one of the most unique compositions of meaning that has ever been assembled. And he strengthened and integrated this entire pattern with his music, developing a philosophy of light motives or recurring musical themes by which he supplied a musical key to each step of the unfoldment of his story. In this, then, we have almost a new mystery ritual, and those who have seen the complete structure of the ring cannot fail to recognize a symbolic work that might almost uh, be considered equal to the great Eleusinian mysteries and rituals of Greece or the Osirian cycle of Egypt. What has not apparently, however, been generally considered is that Wagner had as his aim the creation of a Teutonic scripture. And he divided this scripture almost as in the case of the Jewish Christian Bible. He divided it into an Old Testament and a New Testament. And his Old Testament was the ring. And his New Testament was the great cycle of the Grail. These two highly related works not only present almost identical casts of characters, but are the two necessary parts of one great pageant. The pageant that begins with the building of the wonderful house of the gods on Balawa and ends in the temple of the Holy Grail on Mansalvat in northern Spain. The solemnity and sublimity of this cycle is obscured for most persons uh, by the weight of the music development and by the long hours of listening and watching that are necessary. 
uh, but they are most uh, repaid if we have the patience uh, to go through with them. Thus, in developing our story this evening, we're going to sort of crisscross between the three groups of legends in an effort to determine, if possible, certain relevant and valuable elements. We're going to have something to say about the Odin of the sagas, something about the Wotan of the Rhine, and also something about the Wotan of Wagner. For these are all different entities, although presumably the development of one concept. Our concern primarily this evening is the story, the descent of the world hero. And in this case, the emphasis is strongly and clearly indicated in the Wagnerian cycle and also in the great Sigurd cycle. For Sigurd is Siegfried, the hero of the world. Yet in bringing these related elements into one brief pageantry, Wagner has given us numerous important analogies and helped to tighten the picture, tighten the story uh, for our use. Assuming, as we must, that the roots of the entire theory are in Asia, we are not, therefore, surprised to find that the universe of the sagas and Edas is an Asiatic universe, brought into being by the same general patterns and forces that we find in the great Puranas and the creation literature of the Hindus. There are three worlds, there must always be three worlds. And in the Nordic ritual, these worlds, as in nearly all other great religious systems, constitute a spiritual universe, an invisible causal creation, or state, a vast diffusion of power. A diffusion which later becomes more or less involved in the music of the Rhine, which constantly recurs in the Wagnerian cycle, and is forever telling us of the vast patterns of space that, lies, that lie behind the manifestation of things. The second universe is a universe of mind, and this mental universe is between the superior and the inferior creations. This mental universe is the servant of spirit and lord over matter. And there is a world, a mortal world, a world in which human beings, particularly the tribe of the Volsung, struggle against strange and involved fates and destinies and the entire plan of creation is circumscribed by a strange melancholy that tells us that all that lives must die, all that is born must fade away. The gods and the heroes, the great and the small, the good and the bad, must be swallowed up, ultimately, in the twilight of the gods. It is a very nostalgic theme and yet moving with the solemn grandeur of ritual, unfolding like a high mass, it commands our attention and consideration from the beginning. Over the whole vast mystery broods the eternal spirit of All-Father. All-Father formless, actually nameless, without boundary or limitation, simply forever there, forever observing, never interfering, forever permitting, never denying. By his own immense and incredible silence, confounding both gods and men. For even the greatest of the immortal mortals 
and the mortal immortals cannot know all father nor cannot know his will they may bear upon their lances and their spears the runes of sacred wisdom but the mystery of allness of the beginning and the end of the endless ring that goes on producing worlds from itself and returning them to itself unto everlastingness this is all in the mystery of all father and the old Nordic had no way of even brooding upon this mystery but he sort of conceived it in a strange way as brooding upon him foreverness observing him knowing him and yet he never able to remove the veil which conceals the ultimate of cause and the ultimate of effects and in the nature and being and time of all father which goes on and on and on forever and forever there is a vast abyss and the depths of this no man can touch and the substance of this no man can understand it was like some strange cosmic fjord cutting deep into the infinite belowness of things well this is what the German mystic Bernie later called this and abyss time and eternity nothing at all and with the same broad brush that mythologists are always permitted to paint with this abyss was bounded upon one extremity by great cliffs of fire and on the other extremity by great cliffs of ice and this fire and this ice these were forever combating together so to say for the heat of one and the cold of the other caused a vast mist to form in the great abyss and this abyss was somewhere in the infinite nature of all father and the fire was the fire of all father and the cold and the ice were also his for he in some way was master of light and darkness heat and cold some have suggested that these ancient peoples were trying to work with the concept of the duality of electricity and magnetism polarization in space we cannot say but it certainly sounds as though they were thinking in that way and from all time there were also great giants well there were giants upon the earth or in the worlds of those days and those at the north were the giants of ice glistening and gleaming with bodies made of glaciers and those at the south were giants of fire reaching out flaming arms and howling and shrieking in the incredible combustions and these giants hurled ice and fire into the great depths and the name of the great deep the cleft that went on forever was Gunungagat and here as a result of the minglings of frost and fire rose great clouds of hoarfrost immense strange frosty mists and these whirled and swirled and twisted and turned through the ages until gradually they formed themselves into a strange shape and this shape was that of a giant an immense and incredible being who filled the whole of space like some vast embryo within the womb a giant composed of fire and ice of heat and cold of light and darkness of life and death and the name of this giant was Ema and he had one eye and he writhed and twisted and turned in this great uterine abyss and in the course of time 
this great giant became like a world, vast and immense. And from his frosty and icy surfaces, things began to grow and to live. And then again, by that broad stroke, which we cannot account for, there wandered from we know not where, because there is no record to tell us, the last thing we would assume to be present under such conditions, and that was a kindly, gentle cow. <laughs> and this cow was called the Great Mother. And this Great Mother perhaps is Hathor, the cow goddess of Egypt. Perhaps she is any one of the mysterious beast deities which we find in ancient times. All we know about the great cow mother was that she was forever in need of salt. But without salt, she could not live. That is the reason the Roman soldiers were paid their salaries, because the word salary means salt and was necessary for their keeping. And later, it became a little, in, a little confused with good Roman coinage, but it was still the salt of salvation without which man could not live, in this case his wages. But the cow mother was in great need of salt. And so while she was wandering around upon this strange frosty body of Irma seeking salt, she began to lick the ice, and with her great moist warm tongue she was seeking salt. But instead of salt, she licked out of the ice three sleeping gods who had been resting there from no one knows when. And the most important to us of these gods that was brought out of the ice was Odin the Allfather. Not the supreme being, not the great one, but the first of the gods. And Odin with his brothers, who were also licked from the ancient ice, turned upon the Horfrost giant, their eternal father, Emer, and slew him. And from the body of Emer, the great primordial being, these gods fashioned the world. And they fashioned the world by raising up the skull of Emer and formed of it the bowl of heaven. And they also then called upon four little elemental dwarfs to come to their assistance, Audrey, Sudri, Nordri, and West Vestri, from which we have north, east, south, and west, and they placed these at the corners of the skull to hold it up. Then they took the body of them, Imar, and they formed the earth. And they took his hair, and they made, his, made vegetation, and the body began to rot, and out of the rotting of the body crawled all kinds of living things, tiny lives, living out of putrefaction, and these slowly populated the earth and grew and increased until they became species and tribes and ultimately races of beings. And in this great world that was formed from the body of Emer, they took his eyebrows and they put them around the edge of the world so that men would not fall off. And they called this great flat disk which they had fashioned Midgard. And in order to further protect everything, the gods placed around this the Midgard serpent, a great serpent that dwelled in the bottom of ocean, an ocean extended from land to the eyebrows of Emer. And in the bottom of the ocean was this great serpent, was as large and long as the distance around the earth, so that it remained forever with its tail in its mouth, the symbol of the serpent of eternity. And this serpent sometimes was angry, and sometimes it writhed and twisted in the bottom of the ocean, causing storms and earthquakes and all kinds of strange and terrible phenomena. Now we have something else that comes in this pattern also. When Odin, who had brought all these things about and had fashioned his creatures according to his own kind, 
realized that the time had come to bring order out of chaos, he caused a tree to be planted in the lowest parts of the body of Eman. And this tree, like the spinal cord of a giant, grew up through the three worlds and became the, tr the tree Egdrasil, the tree of existence, the tree of the world and of life. And all things that lived, lived upon this tree, and around the midst of the tree was placed this great disk which we call the earth. And in the midst of this earth there rose a mountain, and this mountain was called the mountain of the gods. And here Odin, calling upon all the elemental powers and forces of nature, whom Wagner later introduces under the name of the great giants, builds his castle, his palace, his throne of rulership, the magnificent hall of judgment and of counsel, which is called Asgard. And here with his gods, forming together the sacred circle of twelve like the Olympian deities, Odin ruled his world, his universe. And from a great throne on the very peak of his palace he gazed out upon all things and was ever mindful like Zeus of everything that happened in the world. And he had ravens that went forth to all corners of space and brought him messages. And then also on the great slopes of the mountain of the gods he built the glorious palace of Valhalla. And this great wonderful palace was made of the shields of heroes upheld by the spears of conquerors. It was the place of feasting of the blessed dead. And those who died in the defense of the gods, or nobly and worthily upon the field of battle, were picked up by the Valkyrie, the virgin daughters of Odin, and carried by them upon their eight-footed steeds to the wonderful banquet hall of Valhalla. Here, according to the legends, we had a real Nordic paradise where men fought all day, their wounds were healed at sunset, and they feasted all night. The next morning they were all ready to fight again. What could be a more cozy and truly earth-like situation? <laughs> I think it should have been set here instead of elsewhere because that is about our way of life in a large symbolical picture. It makes little difference whether we're fighting industrially or economically or from a militant standpoint. It's struggle for food in order that we may eat to struggle some more. Now, also in the preparation of this universe, the tree went down far below the surface of the Midgard world of men into a strange primordial darkness beneath which was called Hilheim from which we have our word hell but in their case the word did not imply hot as it does with us but cold and when some missionaries went to the Eskimos, they had to do the same thing with the Christian concept because a fiery perdition was too inviting and in suggested sin to these frozen souls. But down in the bottom of this abyss were also at the roots of the tree of life, which was rooted in the strange uh, residue, the strange decomposition of the body of Emer at the very bottom of the great Ganunga Gap in which the tree grew. The roots at the roots of this tree, fate, the mysterious power of destiny to which even Odin must bow, placed a great host of worms, horrible little eating, gnawing things with all the best attributes of a California termite. The purpose of these worms was to gnaw through the roots of the world tree, kill it, and destroy it forever. And also down in this same abyss was a stream, 
a stream that flowed like the waters of Lethe through the underworld, and also like the waters of Mimesone, were the abodes of memory. And this stream poured into a pool, and this pool was under the keeping of a strange ancient god of fates, a god so old that, inconsistent as it may be, he was not included among the creations that Odin made, even though Odin was supposed to have begun it all. This god was nothing but a huge face, a strange, immense, melancholy, icy countenance, gazing forever out over the rim of the pool which he guarded. And this god was named Mima, and this was his pool, and it was the pool of memory. And Odin, having set his world in such order as he could, and still burdened with all the doubts and misgivings that attend uh, creativity in almost any field, especially in so large and arbitrary an undertaking, realizing that he had fashioned a world without knowing why, that he had created something without the sanction of Allfather because he did not know what Allfather meant. Odin did not know where he had come from. He did not know when he was born because he was a grown man when he was licked out of the ice for the great cow. He knew nothing of his own origin. He knew nothing of his own destiny. Therefore, realizing that unless we know origin and destiny, we can never survive, Odin went down to the source of all wisdom, the great glazy face of Mimir, in the darkness of the subconscious, of the unconscious, of the deepest and most profound roots of the self. And Mimir listened to the cry of the god and told him very frankly that if he wished wisdom in addition to all his other glories, he must make a great sacrifice for it. And Odin swore upon his spear that he would make any sacrifice. And Mimur said, all right, if you want wisdom, then pluck out one of your own eyes and cast it into my pool. And without a moment's hesitation, Odin plucked out an eye and cast it into the pool of Mimur. And it was then that Mimur whispered to him the secrets of the rooms or the great laws of Allfather. And he told him many wonderful things, but he refused to tell Odin his own origin or his own destiny. These he could not and would not tell. But uh, Odin, having received all other things and having cut the runes or the sacred characters into his spear shaft, returned again to the upper world there brooded longer over the mystery of it all. Resolved to go further, he listened to the voice of oracles and to whispers that came to him out of the great mystery of space, that if a man would live forever, he must die. And only those who gave their lives could keep them, and those who lost their lives in the search of truth would regain them into everlastingness. He had already given an eye, because if his eye was single, his body was filled with light. Now he was asked by the mysterious voices of the ancients to give more, to die for life. So Odin went out upon the branches of the great tree Egdrasil, and there hanged himself. And he hung there, but he did not die. And further wisdom and further understanding was given to him, and he survived the ordeal and was rescued and lived after having resolved to die. The gods also whispered to him that he could not die until the great day had come. So Odin learned that he could not die, that he could only wait. And in waiting, he completed all the wisdom that it was possible for him to possess. But in addition to wisdom, Odin had other factors that might contribute. For on this tree, the great Egdrasil tree, there lived squirrels. And these squirrels 
formed a wonderful communication system. They would run up to the gods and listen outside the door of Valhalla where they could hide in the doorways and peek under the doors and got all the scandal. They then rushed down the tree to the roots where the demons were and told them all about it. Then they watched and listened until the demons and the spirits and the mysterious beings of the underworld, the creatures that lived in Elfheim and all these deep places, until they learned all the secrets from these. Then the squirrels ran up again and whispered it to the gods and kept everything more or less in a state of constant pandemonium. <laughs> there is another interesting situation that comes, and that is that although Odin apparently was the first of the gods, he had to fight for his throne. He had to fight against something that suddenly looms out to us as older than he was. For somewhere in this mystery, there was a still more ancient deity. A deity who had long and primordially ruled in space and in chaos. And this being was Tor the Thunderer. The mysterious deity who had the power over the lightnings and who carried in his hand a great hammer. And whenever he threw this hammer, it was like a boomerang. It struck its object and then returned to him again. And this hammer was in the form of a cross. And with this he overcame and destroyed all evil monsters. And at one time he even tried uh, to capture the Midgard snake that encircled the earth. But the serpent was so great that it pulled the bottom out of the boat on which Thor was standing. But this Tor was a, was a mighty man of ancient times, a mighty force. And it was finally necessary for Odin to come into combat with Tor. He did not destroy him, but by the power of the runes and of magic and of the wisdom of Mimur, he overcame Tor and accepted him into his order of gods. And Tor became the faithful servant of the new order of deities. By this time we begin to see that the universe is more or less in order. And we see Odin presiding over the great council. But also we observe even in these early days that tragedy is ever near. In order to build his great castle at Asgard, Odin had made a pact with the giants. He had promised to give them a great treasure, the goddess of beauty. But when the palace was finished, he broke his word and did not do what he had promised. Later, according to the Wagnerian cycle, he paid these giants with the treasure of the Nibelung, which had also been dishonestly acquired. And Odin came under a curse and this curse gradually descended through ages of time because an evil thing had been done and this evil of broken honor would ultimately destroy all of the gods and their world and everything that pertained to it. Now in order to keep the wonderful world of the gods happy and beautiful Odin created out of himself another deity, his beloved son. And this beloved son was certainly the Christ hero of the Nordic peoples. He was called Balder the Beautiful. He was happiness, joy, peace, love. In all things, he was the ideal of everything that was different from the strange, rugged, old gods who had sired him because he believed in song and music and art he believed in poetry and he was forever shining and his head was surrounded with light and his light brought peace and joy to men and to the whole world and in the time when he was created to meet the evil things 
Odin went to every living creature upon the earth and bound them with an oath that not one of them would ever injure Balder the Beautiful. Not a rock would permit itself to be thrown upon him. Not a tree would allow a branch to be fashioned into an arrow or a spear to injure him. Not a human being would touch him. Everything was bound by an oath. And Odin was very confident that perhaps he had outwitted this strange morbid destiny that hung over. But destiny is greater even than the gods of the Northland. For in his great pact with life he had asked everything and everyone except one. And he had failed to ask a little branch of mistletoe that grew high on another tree. He had asked the tree, but he had not noticed the mistletoe. Now it was obvious that uh, such a circumstance was very humiliating to the mistletoe. So that instead of being happy with everything else in this voluntary agreement, the mistletoe developed a grudge. It would have been perfectly willing to have agreed, but was very, very unhappy because it had not been asked. And it was later that Loki, the adversary, that evil spirit that is forever present, the god of fires, the backbiter, the cynical one, the Mephisto of the divine group, that Loki should discover this fact and to revenge himself upon Odin he caused an arrow to be fashioned of this mistletoe and he placed this arrow in the bow of Hoda the blind god and he pointed the arrow because the blind god would not knowingly have done this but he was blind and did not know what he was aiming at and as a result of that this blind god slew Balder the Beautiful. There is another legend to the effect that everyone uh, fired arrows and stones at Balder as a game because they knew none could touch him. And then Loki insinuated this arrow into the game and thus brought about the death of Balder. There are many legends, but this is the substance. Balder the Beautiful died. And with the death of Balder, all the joy of the gods died. And when this occurred, Odin knew that he could never outwit the inevitable. That the time had come and must come when the way of the mysterious destiny of things would be fulfilled. He had never been able to fathom the mystery of Allfather. He had never been able to determine the secret of the world. He did not possess the power to form things in eternity only in time and that time must end so this melancholy struggle against inevitables follows on down through the entire story of the ring and then Odin reconsiders the possibility that if he can never achieve the mystery perhaps the world can be saved in another way. Perhaps the mystery can be solved, if not by him, by something that he creates. So he set himself apart to fashion and dream forth a creation that should save the world and save him. He would devise a strategy. And he created in his wisdom a people set aside to do his will a chosen people and these people were called the Volsungs the race that was fashioned by Odin himself bred from his seed and was to produce as from the tree of a race as its final fruit its final harvest the hero of the world. Now, Odin
Hagen believed that when Sigmund and Siglindi came along, that Sigmund would become the father of the hero, or might even become the hero himself. But again, strange powers of fate intervened. Because Sigmund and Siglindi, brother and sister, fell in love with each other. And as a result of this incestuous union, the great goddess of law and virtue, Odin's wife, demanded that Odin destroy his own children for having broken the laws that were upon the runes, or upon the spear inscribed with runes. Broken-hearted, Odin was forced uh, to prevent the very thing which he had sought to attain. But Odin had thoughts and these thoughts had wings. And of these thoughts there was born his beloved thought, the thought which is himself. Brunhilda, the goddess of the Valkyrie. And in Wagner's opera, Odin's uh, Wotan speaks to Brunhilda as his other self, as his own real thinking. And he sends her as his thought in disobedience and causes her to save the infant son of Sigmund and Siglindi and to take him away and hide him because he was the heir to the Valsung. He was the last of this great line and he must become the hero of the world. So was born Sigmund, who was truly a widow's son, posthumously born, who knew neither his parents, nor his origin, nor his destiny, any more than did Parsifal in the second part of the cycle, the Grail cycle, who when asked of his ancestry could reply only that his mother Herzeleda was the sorrow of the world. And so Siegfried, or Sigmund, lived, brought up by a Nibelung himself, brought up by a little dwarf. And he had the broken sword of his father, Sigmund, the sword that must sometime break the spear of Odin. And he cast, uh, cast and mended the great sword, Notong. And he became the hero of the world. He achieved all the wonders that are familiar to the concept of the Nordic and Germanic hero. And in the case of Sigurd, he slew the giant Fafna, who guarded the treasure of the Nibelung. He became master over many things. In the Teutonic version, he begins what Wagner calls the Great Rhine Journey, the journey of life down the River Rhine. But Odin knows, unfortunately, and can do nothing about it, that the hero of the world is journeying only to death. That by the strange laws of fate, nothing can change the work of the Norns, the three gray sisters who, we, who spin forever the thread of destiny. Odin makes one last great effort, and as Wotan in the Wagnerian cycle calls upon Erda, the Earth Mother, begging her to reveal the secret, the mystery of survival. But she is silent. And so... Siegfried, continuing down the great river Rhine, goes his way to the house of the Gibbachung, where at last he perishes with the spear of Hagen in his back. And with the death of Siegfried, the hope of Odin or Wotan for his world, the whole regency 
of the world created in the dim past out of the frost of Gelungagap, the whole hope ends. Now this is the signal in the Sigurd saga for the last great war. Wagner summarizes it very briefly in the Gotthardamerung. Following the great immolation scene in which Brunhilde rides her horse into the funeral pyre, the waters of the Rhine rise, being the waters of space. We hear the second theme of the Rhine maidens, and we see them capturing the, the ancient ring from the drowning Hagen and carrying it back again to the mysterious abode of the gold of immortality in the depths of the Rhine. Then the waters rise and the universe ends, but the waters do not quite reach the sky. The temple of the gods falls, but there is one mountain peak that survives, and in this mountain peak there hides a man and a woman, and when the floods subside, they are the new Adam and Eve, and with the gods who are gone, the old order passed forever, these two are fruitful and replenish the earth and the gentle pastoral world of man as we know it came into existence. So much for the Wagnerian termination. For the Sigurd saga we have a much more dramatic termination. Odin at the end of his dream, realizing that with the death of Sigurd the great hope of the Nibelung, the great hope of the Volsung is ended, becomes part of a very intense climactic drama that begins to unfold. First Odin realizes that the moment of the Ragnarok is at hand, the day of the dissolution, when the armies of light and darkness must meet upon the great plain of battle to fight or survival, when the gods and demons, when life and death must come in the great Armageddon and so Odin and his gods, his aces, his deities, draw themselves up before the great palace of Asgard. And as they watch the pits of perdition open, from Hilheim and all the distant places come the monsters. The Midgard serpent rises, fire belching from the sea. Loki, long prisoned in the earth, bursts his bonds and comes raging with flames upon the field of battle. <coughs> the spirits and souls of the dead who have passed to damnation appear riding in ships made of human fingernails. The saga, the legends become more and more strange until finally comes the great battle itself, the heroes paired off against the villains each one slaying his enemy and at the same time slaying himself. And in the very heart of the battle, at the very heat of it, the earth begins to shake and quiver. The worms gnawing at the roots of the tree of life have gnawed it through. A dracel tree with the three worlds falls back into the abyss of space. Gods and demons, heaven, earth and hell, vanish away forever and nothing remains but the mist and the great gap in space and the strange, mysterious, ever-brooding presence of All-Father who is neither pleased nor displeased, who is neither satisfied nor dissatisfied, but simply remains forever, observing, knowing, and silent. In substance, that is all we can do at the moment with the outline of the legend. Now we've got to go into certain parts of it. But that gives you perhaps some little concept the way some bard might have spent an evening telling fragments or elements of the story. Naturally, we've had to abridge them and leave out many important and relevant parts. But anyway, this is to a degree the spirit of it. Now what do we have actually when we are dealing with this? We have the problem of many worlds and many levels and many planes brought together in a strange composite. Obviously, 
from all the accounts, the world of Odin and his gods, the world that passed away in the Ragnarok, is not the physical world we know. Actually, Ragnarok, while it might have some historical, geological relationship to Atlantis or something of that nature, does not basically mean a catastrophe or cataclysm that took place in the material world. Perhaps even the sinking of Atlantis has another meaning also. Perhaps this submerging of a great empire has something to do with the submerging of consciousness, that it is a vast psychological symbol and not merely a factual incident, although it may have foundations or be tied, as most legends are, to some appropriate factual circumstance. Odin is never born. He comes out of the ice. He is awakened from sleep by the heat of the cow mother licking the ice. We apparently have in Odin the concept of universal mind. Universal mind, which is the demigod, the immortal mortal. Mind can solve every mystery except the mystery of itself and has remained in this condition ever since. Mind can rule matter, but it can never fathom the depths of consciousness. Mind can order everything inferior to itself, but cannot order itself. Mind can give man a knowledge of all environmental things, or all things which may be weighed, estimated, and polarized. And the world over which mind rules was polarized by the struggle of the frost giants and the flame giants. And so perhaps ruling as regent over creation is this universal mind which was not born but was released from sleep or ice. This ice is not so different uh, from the Egyptian use of the symbol because ancient peoples found that ice was a preservative. Much earlier than the Roman Empire, fish were brought hundreds and thousands of miles across land by being packed in ice uh, for the amazement and entertainment of Oriental monarchs and Roman emperors. Men knew the principle of refrigeration, and they knew that ice preserved. Therefore, in a strange way, the cosmic suspension, uh, which they recognized in this Nordic li uh, land, that creation was periodic. It was a great wave that came out and retired again, like the ebbing and flowing of the sea. And after the day of manifestation was the great night of suspense, or suspension, in which everything remained unchanged or immovable, or was preserved, or caused to float over the abyss like Noah in his wonderful ark. And this thing, everything held as though in a strange fantasy, in a strange grip of sleep, seemingly represented the ice, which like some archetypal structure held things unchanging, undiminishing, until they were released again. The cow mother, of course, represents nature or the principle of natural emergence. And nature itself, apparently, by these people, was assumed to be the power which brought forth intellect or released the mind from sleep, probably because nature ultimately produced those kinds of forms in which mind could express itself or be released into manifestation. Thus nature releases mind by building bodies, refining faculties, and making possible the manifestation of an intellectual power. So Odin is the Demiurgus of the Greeks, the Zeus, or the Jupiter of the Latins, not the supreme deity, but the regent of a world, a level of existence. And Odin occupied this middle distance. And Odin, as mind, moving upon the face of chaos, broke it, destroyed it, and fashioned cosmos from its remains. Thus mind brings order out of chaos. 
Mind destroys the sleeping giant of matter. Mind releases the energies that are locked within it. Mind in its various polarizations represented by its two brother deities also turns ultimately and overcomes the power